This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So for our hot question of the day today, we want to talk about airline travel because the Transportation Minister, Mark Garneau, unveiled some new passenger regulations today. So we want to know which one of them is the most important thing to you when it comes to flying. Do you want rules about waiting on the tarmac for a maximum of three hours? Because that's in there. Do you want rules about making sure you get the right information when it comes to delays? That's in there as well. What about overbooking compensation? You want to make sure that they deal with that or baggage compensation? Do you want really strict rules about that? So which one of those are the most important? That's our hot question of the day. Uh, you can go online to simisarah980 or at cknw to cast your vote. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Tell me what is the most frustrating thing, do you think, of dealing with the airlines when something goes wrong? And what would you tell them to fix? And use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. Well, the BC Court of Appeal has ruled that the province cannot restrict oil shipments through its borders. That's a decision that marks a win for the future of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Now, this was a constitutional reference question that had been sent to the court by the BC NDP government asking whether BC had the authority to create a permitting regime for companies in regards to what they were shipping through the pipeline. But this was a unanimous decision by a five-judge appeal court panel that said this proposed legislation was not constitutional because it interferes with the federal government's exclusive jurisdiction over interprovincial pipelines. So let's break all of this down, talk about what this means, the potential impact of it. Joining us now, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry. Hi, Keith. Hey, Simi. Okay, so this is very significant, but do we know what the next move is here? David Eby is going to have a news conference. The Attorney General will have a news conference at 11 a.m. He may uh, announce that BC is appealing this ruling, or he may announce that they'll take the proverbial few days to study this thing before appealing. Uh, they have the right as as a provincial government to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, even though this was a decisive, unanimous ruling from the BC Court of Appeal. Uh, I have yet to meet a lawyer or a legal observer who thought the BC had any chance at all right. on this case in court. So I, again, don't think uh, anybody out there is going to think they're going to succeed on this appeal, given the decisive ruling here and the, the fact it was unanimous. And I think uh, the BC NDP now might be a little vulnerable to accusations of just wasting tax dollars by going after a fruitless legal claim here. So no surprise today. Big win for the Trans Mountain Project, uh, a setback for the BC government. But, you know, Simi, from day one, I've never got the feeling that the Horgan government was all in on opposing this pipeline. Really? Its heart just wasn't in it. Uh, it announced early on it had no legal jurisdiction to stop this pipeline for everything it said in opposition. Uh, it had no ability to stop the permits to, to really do anything other than concoct this somewhat obscure uh, legal argument that nobody thought was going to be su- be successful in court, anyways. And again, I go back to knowing John Horgan for you know twenty five years. He comes from the energy sector in terms of his background as a civil servant. He was very much a proponent of pipelines and energy projects when he worked for the NDP government in the nineties. I just don't see him being you know emotionally attached to blocking this mm-hmm. pipeline. I think his priorities lie elsewhere. Do you think then that this now gives them some cover to say, "Hey, we tried." Yeah, I think that's been the game plan all along that we've done, you know, what we could do. Already I see, though, environmental groups, uh, West, the Wilderness Committee 
and others saying, uh, well, that's that's not good enough. You got to do more. Uh, Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee saying that uh, he's got to find more tools in his toolbox than just this one. And I'm not, uh, you know, he suggests they can get rid of uh, abandon what they say is the equivalency agreement and entered with the federal government and order its own environmental assessment. It says uh, they say they could add conditions to the provincial certificate, uh, like demonstrating the ability to clean up the Lumens feel completely. Uh, but again, I just don't see the Horgan government making any further effort here other than perhaps appealing this court decision, which again was very decisive and against the government's uh, legal arguments here, which it really was uh, shattered by this judgment at the end of the day. Right. I also had questions too about this. It was so decisive. It clearly lays out where the federal government has jurisdiction here. But what does this also mean for Alberta's turn off the TAPS bill? Well, I think some of the analysis I've seen on that is that uh, that's not quite the same thing, because uh, here you have a province trying to stop the flow of uh, a product coming from another province. In Alberta's case, it's something that originates in Alberta. And does the province have the ability just to say, well, we're not going to, it starts here and we just don't, we're not going to put it in the pipe anymore. Uh, and that may be a, le- a different legal argument uh, it, that uh, that Alberta uh, makes if it ever does get to court. I mean, it's a, it's a unique, I don't think, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think any of us were talking about who's got the right to put stuff in the pipeline. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, where, and who's got the right to stop it. It's, and it's now an interesting the court challenge on both sides, but I think Alberta might have a stronger case here than, uh, again, not being a lawyer, but some of the analysis I've seen online is that Alberta's case is fundamentally different than BC's case. You make a good point, though, about if that one ever gets to court, it may not do that. And in this case, they specifically sent it to court to decide this question. Yes, this was a reference case. It was one uh, that they um, they wanted the courts to, to uh, resolve. In fact, they asked the, the federal government to refer this immediately to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Fed said, no, you don't even have any jurisdiction here, so we're not, we're not going to do that. Uh, so this was, again, this is sort of concocted out of uh, almost thin air by the BC NDP. This was not contemplated or even talked about in the election campaign or in the run-up to the election campaign. You got the impression from the NDP in opposition that they were going to do the old lie down in front of the bulldozers type yeah. thing uh, in, uh, if, if this pipeline were to proceed. Once they get into government, they had a legal analysis. They don't really have a lot of tools to block this thing, and they concocted this court case that nobody thought had much of a chance of success, and sure enough, uh, the Court of Appeal confirmed that. Okay, so this case aside then, is there anything else that they have that they're ready to do or seemingly prepared to do at this point to slow this down? No, we've been asking that question for some time and have yet to see any evidence they have any more tools at their disposal rather than this this particular one. And it's interesting, the, the ND, John Horgan never wants to talk about the Kinder Morgan pipeline or the Trans Mountain pipeline. George Heyman doesn't bring it up. And this is something that only comes up if we ask them about it. It's not volunteered, which tells me, again, if a government doesn't want to talk about something, it's usually not interested in it. And they haven't wanted to talk about the Trans Mountain pipeline since the day they got into office. It's something they hope just goes away as a political issue. And uh, now that this court has ruled this way, I don't suspect uh, the, you're going to see the NDP find any more tools in that toolbox, which turns out to be a very small one. Right. So let's also be clear here, too, and you pointed this out many times, Keith, this ruling aside, this court case aside, none of it has actually impacted the work on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. No, this is this is where Jason Kenney, I think, is, uh, has to be called to account. He keeps claiming BC's trying to block, is, is blocking the pipeline, you know, full stop. BC's done nothing to block the pipeline. It's granted every permit that's in front of it. It has a lot more pending, but it has not stopped any permits. 
it's allowed work to proceed. The only real obstruction to the pipeline came from the municipality of Burnaby, which lost 20-plus court uh, judgments on this, uh, from various other court applications, including the Federal Court of Appeal, which ultimately stopped the pipeline because it said there was not adequate consultation with First Nations, which is why the government has spent months now consulting with First Nations, and we expect the, the green light for the project to be given again on June 18th uh, after the consultations are over. But BC really, you right to me, BC's just never been part of this conversation in blocking the pipeline. It's had this obscure constitutional reference question, and that's it. Uh, BC actually has been the one jurisdiction that's expedited the project because it keeps granting permits. Right. Okay. Which is funny how that never just seems to kind of make it into the narrative, though, does no. it? No, it doesn't. And again, Jason Kenney, you know, he's, and, and Rachel Notley, you know, that suits their political purposes to paint BC True. as the bad guy here. But really, at the end of the day, the BC government really hasn't done much. And that's why I think you see a lot of environmental groups expressing frustration today and, and disappointment because they're realizing that they, they thought was an ally in blocking the pipeline turns out to be a very small, small tool in a very small toolbox. So then do you think, is there any route here for them to move forward and try anything else? Or do you think they're just going to say, well, we tried? Well, I don't. Th- I don't see the BCNAP doing anything more. I think this is it. This is their court case. They're hoping if, if elements in this party that want the pipeline stopped, it will seek other legal challenges. Again, this is the type of issue that can divide the NDP. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to be very careful here. There's a strong component that is very much part of jobs and the economy, growing the economy, building the resource industries. Uh, which means embracing pipelines. And there's a wing of the party that's very strong um, environmental activist uh, wing of the party. And that's why I think you see a premier's office here that's walking a very fine line between the two groups and straddling a very politically tenuous position. And uh, they did what they had to do, and I just don't see them doing any more than what they did. All right, Keith, thank you. All right, thank you, Jimmy. That's Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Now, we are heading into the busy summer travel season, and given how incredibly nutty and busy flying has become, it's no wonder that we all have some pretty similar beefs when it comes to problems, right? Mine? I live in fear of being stuck on the tarmac. You know, how you hear those horror news stories about passengers that were stuck on a plane for six, seven, eight, nine hours, and they're not allowed to get off. Uh, That sounds like my worst nightmare right there. Like, I'm so afraid of having that happen. And there were a couple of worst case scenario stories like that that forced the federal government to finally do something. So they have come up with an air passenger protection regulation plan. And today, the Transportation Minister, Mark Garneau, kind of rolled it out. A lot of these take effect on July the 15th. So if you're going to be flying this summer, these rules will apply. And a lot of them, I'd say most of them are to our benefit, essentially. So it's good to know what these rules are. And essentially, it sets out what compensation airlines have to pay for failing to provide what the government calls adequate services to passengers. So as I mentioned, the Transportation Minister, Mark Garneau, announced these this morning, uh, including some help and compensation to passengers stuck on tarmacs. I was very happy to hear that. Uh, He announced these at a press conference at Pearson International Airport in Toronto. Rules for clear communication, tarmac delays, denied boarding, lost or damaged luggage, and the transportation of musical instruments will come into force on July the 15th. The more complex rules related to seating as well as delays and cancellations will come into force on December 15th. Our system will be world-class, offering travelers flying to, 
from or within Canada with real and fair treatment standards and compensation. Unfortunately, there has been some misinformation circulating regarding these regulations. These regulations do not increase tarmac delay time after which air carriers are required to offer passengers the option to disembark. Also, these regulations will ensure that all air carriers provide the same minimum standards of treatment to passengers during a tarmac delay. There will be penalties up to $25,000 per violation for carriers who do not provide these minimum standards. Aha. Okay. So what does this involve? Well, it involves things like maximum of a three-hour delay on the tarmac. Like to me, that's two hours too much, but okay, I'm willing to compromise on this thing. Essentially, they can't let you sit on that plane on the tarmac for more than three hours uh, without allowing you to disembark. Uh, And then if they do that, then we'll have to get some compensation for that because right now there's nothing. Like right now you get nothing and you're essentially at their mercy for stuff like that. Uh, Timely information about delays. That's another big issue that you deserve the right. You can't just sit at the airport wondering what's happened. They have to inform you about what is happening in your flight. Overbooking compensation. This is a big one. This is the right to board, essentially. You've got a ticket, you paid for that ticket, all of a sudden you get to the gate, you think you're about to come on, then you're not. What rights do you have at that point? How much money do they have to give you? What is the procedure? This also sets out all the rules for that. And also, lost baggage compensation. Now, right now, it kind of varies airline by airline. Uh, and obviously, in some case, some of them deal with it fairly well. But just in case, this kind of standardizes all of those rules, sets out how much money you're entitled to and how quickly they have to respond to you. So speaking to reporters after this press conference, the minister, Mark Arnaud, made it clear that he believes these measures are unprecedented. There has never been a regulation that specifies the amount of time. Now, for comparison purposes, uh, uh, in the United States, the tarmac delay for domestic flights is three hours in regulation. It is four hours for domestic flights. In the case of Europe, there are no uh, specified times with respect to uh, having to disembark passengers. You say the Montreal Convention then... You say the Montreal Convention then has not been incorporated into Canadian law, that it's not a standard for air travel across the globe? There has never been a regulation, Canadian regulation, stipulating that all airlines must after three hours, and by the way, during those three hours, as you will see if you look at the regulations, we have now put in standards of treatment with respect, and I mentioned it, with respect to informing people, with respect to having access to the bathroom, with respect to air conditioning, heating, regular status updates, those are things that we have incorporated within that window. Uh, You have to realize, of course, people who are sitting in an airplane uh, because of a tarmac delay, what they really want to do is to get to to their destination. So we gave a great deal of thought to uh, what that period of time would be and also taking into account operational realities that uh, if you make the decision uh, that you're going to go back to uh, to uh, the uh, to the ramp to the uh, terminal that you can actually end up spending even more time before you get to your destination. So we gave this a great deal of thought, and it is now in the regulation. It is three hours. Anything that was before that did not apply. 
Okay. And so he talked about the rules of how they have to treat you during those delays as well. So, and these take effect July the 15th. An airline will also have to ensure that that aircraft, if you're stuck on the tarmac on it, has proper ventilation and is either kept cool or warm, depending on the time of year. You also must be provided food and drink and the ability to communicate with people outside of the plane, if possible, free of charge, they said. And that's even just like using your cell phones, because we've heard of stories in the past where airlines wouldn't let people use their cell phones. And some people did anyway and called 911 to get themselves off the plane, uh, but just overheating and you've got children on the plane, people who need their medication, all that kind of stuff. It was a nightmare in some of these scenarios. Also, planes that have been on that tarmac for three hours have to go back to the gate, right? So people can get off, but they do have an exception for that. And that is if departure is likely within the first 45 minutes after that three hours is up. So essentially, if the plane is imminently going to depart, you can go over that three-hour departure. But what about overbooking? This is a big one. So starting July the 15th, if this happens to you, if you are prevented from getting on the aircraft because of overbooking, you will be compensated depending on how long it's going to take you to finally get to your destination. Overbooking delays of less than six hours requires a minimum $900 payment. If you are delayed between six and nine hours from getting to your destination, it means that you'll get paid a minimum of $1,800. And if you have a delay of longer than nine hours uh, to get to your destination, you are supposed to be compensated a minimum of $2,400. Those are some pretty big new rules. Those ones take effect on July the 15th. Now, of course, our friend of the show, Travel Best Bets, Claire Newell, had a chance to join our John McComb this morning to talk about the announcement. And she said that the regulations do tick all the boxes. And she said it's about time Canada introduced something like this. There have been some real horror stories in the past few years about people literally being stuck and calling 911. So this is about time. You know, we're the only... uh, country that doesn't really have a clear passenger bill of rights it's good for the passengers it's good for the airlines and it's about time it's taking a lot of time for them to actually go back and forth with the consultation uh, process but nothing out of the ordinary it's exactly what i would have expected and here's the other thing too is that airlines had a lot of time to fix this problem on their own and they didn't like they were warned time and time again by the government deal with this do something make sure these horror stories don't happen and they still didn't so hopefully they will never have to use these rules hopefully that they this is an incentive for them to get moving uh, and make sure that the people don't get stuck in these kinds of situations now claire newell also said that the dollar amounts the airlines are going to be required to pay passengers for delays is a great start it's certainly not a small amount of money overbooking is something that is happening less and less because of situations like that United Airlines. Remember the guy yeah. who was dragged off? That went viral. It was just such a nightmare. Anyway, there's some really good uh, things that are coming in to, to play because the airlines, it's been up to them to decide how much and if they're going to give compensation. Now it's clear. You know, if it's less than six hours, um, they're going to require a minimum of $900 payment. Delays between six and nine hours, $1,800 payment and um, delays longer than nine hours are going to be $2,400. So it's not insignificant. No, it is not insignificant. And hopefully that will, uh, let's say, encourage 
airlines to make sure that they do this properly, treat people humanely. I think people are generally pretty understanding, right? If the, if things don't work out, but the fact is that it was happening way too often. And some people were just like, wait a minute, this could be avoided if you just did this better. Hopefully this will provide the incentive for them to make sure they do this better. Now, we were also using this as our hot question of the day because we wanted to know that out of all of these new things that have been regulated as part of these airline passenger protection rules, which do you think is the most important? Do you think it's the maximum, you know, three hours on the tarmac? Do you think it's the making sure you get information about delays? Is it the overbooking compensation or is it the baggage compensation, which by the way, also goes up if they completely lose your baggage. So that's what we're asking on our hot question of the day, which you will find at Sarah 980 on Twitter. You will also find it at CKNW on Twitter. Cast your vote there. Uh, I'm not surprised to find out that 46% of people say overbooking compensation is the number one issue for them when it comes to the air passenger protection rules. Uh, Coming in second place, my personal favorite, 38% of people saying that maximum of three hours on the tarmac is very important to them. And 8% each for information about delays and baggage compensation. So way, way down on the list for those things, really high up on the list for making sure people are properly compensated for being bumped off of a flight and making sure that you don't get stuck on a tarmac for more than three hours without being compensated or at least looked after. Food, drink, keep you cool or keep you warm depending on the time of year. Just know that you've got some rights when it comes to that. Don't feel so helpless. Let's talk more about our top story today, shall we? I mean, this just happened about two or so hours ago. So there's lots of reaction, lots of analysis that's going on about this. And this is, of course, the decision that the BC Court of Appeal said the province cannot restrict oil shipments through its borders. Uh, That's a decision that does mark a win for the future of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Uh, BC was seeking to regulate what it called the movement of harmful substances through its territory, through its area. Uh, And this decision says, no, you can't do that. If it's a trans, if it's an interprovincial pipeline, absolutely. The federal government has the say in that it was a five nothing uh, decision that said the government did not have the authority to create a permitting regime for companies that wish to increase their flow of something like diluted bitumen. And again, that was a unanimous decision. We've since heard that the provincial government, uh, David Eby, the attorney general saying they will appeal this to the Supreme Court of Canada. So we've heard from a lot of people today about this decision, like we've heard from you. Many people say they're opposed to this. They want the government to just fold up and say, nope, that's it. We tried and now we need to move on. But there are others who feel differently. Groups like Stand Earth, who are opposed to the pipeline, say that this doesn't mean the end to their opposition to this. And Sven Big joins us now, a climate and energy campaigner with Stand Earth. Sven, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Timmy. So what did you think about this? Were you disappointed by the fact that it was a unanimous ruling by the Court of Appeal? Well, we knew that the province uh, was uh, looking to use some novel uh, regulatory powers to to try to affect the pipeline. So we knew there was a chance this could happen. Uh, But it doesn't change kind of the fundamentals of what's going on with the campaign. The decision rests right now with the federal cabinet and Justin Trudeau. Uh, and if they choose to approve it later this month and restart construction, they're going to face new lawsuits and uh, 
lots of opposition on the ground here in British Columbia. So are you saying those are lawsuits that you're getting ready to file or have been already filed? Well, so uh, the cabinet's going to make a decision about new permits. These were, of course, overturned last August, similar permits. And once they filed that, people will have a 30-day window to decide whether or not to file new cases challenging the government's decision on that. Right. So, I mean, I would assume that the federal government's move on this is a foregone conclusion. They bought the pipeline. They feel strongly in it. On what basis is there still room legally left to fight this then, Sven? Well, um, First Nations are going to look at the permitting process and decide whether or not they feel they've been adequately consulted. Uh, We've heard from some First Nations leaders already that they uh, didn't see much improvement in the process that just is wrapping up right now, uh, and they still have deep concerns. Uh, There are some new concerns around uh, endangered species, in particular uh, steelhead salmon in the interior, where it's come out recently that uh, the federal government has covered up or tried to delay uh, endangered species uh, protection for those uh, that species. So we're going to be looking at uh, all our legal options here at Stand. We tried to force the NEB to take a fuller look at climate impact from the pipeline, and we're turned down. So we're considering our legal options as well. And I think you'll see a variety of cases coming forward after that decision if the government chooses to approve again. Okay, so then do you think this is a done deal? Because as people, there's a lot of opposition to this, we know, but incrementally the pipeline has still been moving forward. Realistically, do you think it can be stopped? Yes, I think that that that's actually the most likely outcome. Um, We've seen time and time again when they try to force through these kind of projects, um, especially when it comes to First Nations title and right. It's very hard to meet that bar, and uh, the government really hasn't improved its record on consultation. Okay, then what do you say to people then who are tired of the fight at this point? Well, I'm tired of the fight, too. I've been doing this for nine years now on this particular project. Um, The problem is that, you know, we live in a world where climate change is happening rapidly. And, you know, we're days away from the parliament declaring a national climate emergency. And at the same time, the same government is considering approving a project that will increase our emissions quite substantially. And those two realities can't live together. About nine years you've been fighting this, Van, you said. Do you get? Do you ever get discouraged, though, because it still does seem to be moving forward? Well, I'm discouraged that um, people like Justin Trudeau, who claim to understand the science of climate change, uh, don't seem to understand that contradiction. And that's, that is, uh, I think, the most frustrating part is politicians who, I think, are trying to do the right thing on, on the climate file, still don't understand that expanding the fossil fuel sector is what's driving climate change. Now, do you think, Sven, this is going to be an issue in the federal election this fall? Well, we saw when Justin Trudeau was in town uh, earlier this week that he was met with protesters. And I'm afraid that if he tries to go ahead and build this project, that is going to be a a recurring event on the campaign trail every time he comes to town. You think that's going to be just here in B.C.? I know that people in Quebec are, are uh, very worried about the climate, very worried about pipelines. In fact, some polling shows us more Quebecers opposed to Trans Mountain and British Columbians on some days. So I think this could be a pro- problem in two key provinces for the prime minister. So you're saying it might be nine years of fighting then, Sven, but you're not done yet. Not, not at all. 
All right. We're ready to keep pushing through. All right, Sven, thank you. Thanks for having me on. That is Sven Biggs, a climate and energy campaigner with Stand Earth. You heard them say it. They are continuing to push ahead with their opposition to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. He said that imminently we do expect the federal government, or the cabinet anyway, to rule on the moving forward of that project. And he says when that happens, they stand ready to continue to protest, continue to file uh, legal briefs on this, and essentially to take that project to court. Let's take a time out here from talking about BC politics. And if you want to feel sorry for another jurisdiction that's dealing with a whole mess of stuff, well, look no further than the UK over the water there. A very tumultuous, I would say, two years at this point, even longer. Ever since they had that Brexit vote, uh, it has been one kind of nightmarish scenario after another. Theresa May thought she was going to be the one to pull this off and deliver Brexit. She has been, I don't know, unable is the right word to say that because a lot of this is a problem of her own making, right? Uh, Well, she hasn't delivered. And so now she is now out. She is resigning as the prime minister of the UK on June the 7th. And they don't waste any time when it comes to picking a new party leader and a new prime minister. You know, if that were, if there were like a leadership convention here in Canada, it would be like, oh yeah, six months for this and we'd have to do the convention and all that. No, no, no. The new Conservative Party leader and therefore new Prime Minister is going to be chosen the following week. So in a couple of weeks, they're going to have a new Prime Minister just like that. For Theresa May, though, it was an emotional scene as she made the announcement outside of Number 10 Downing Street earlier today. We stand together and together we have a great future. Our politics may be under strain, but there is so much that is good about this country. So much to be proud of. So much to be optimistic about. I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honor of my life to hold. The second female prime minister, but certainly not the last. I do so with no ill will but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. As you can tell there, she was getting quite emotional towards the end. So why did this happen now? Well, it happened after her last-ditch effort to get her Brexit plan through the House of Commons, and that backfired fairly spectacularly, actually, because the members of her own party, her own MPs, were up in arms about this. Members of the cabinet had mounted pretty much an open revolt against her because she offered everybody a a vote on holding a second referendum and joining a temporary customs union with the European Union. And that was something that, come on, they're so far beyond that at this point, right? Like they have been voting constantly on all these different things. And you would think that by now you would know this was definitely going to go down to defeat. So she pulled the bill before it even got a vote after she kind of was accepting reality that this thing was going nowhere. And essentially, her MPs, even those closest to her, were saying, you know what? No, this is done. It's time for you to go. And so she did that. Now, earlier today, our John McComb spoke with the Global News European correspondent Redmond Shannon about the resignation and why she chose to do this instead of waiting for an election. She obviously had the attitude as leader that her sole mission as prime minister was to deliver Brexit one way or the other. And she had three attempts. She 
was that there were a number of points in which she could have resigned, most notably when she called an election in 2017, an election that proved out to be a bit of a disaster, really, because it uh, turned her majority into a, a minority. But uh, she was going for the fourth attempt, and it appeared that this fourth attempt was even less popular than the third one. There was nowhere left for her to go. Her backbenchers were scheming to change the very rules of the Conservative Party earlier this week in order to push forward another no-confidence vote. So really, there was nowhere left for her to turn, and I suppose she wanted to go out in her own terms rather than be pushed. Oh boy, but that's not going to look that way right now, is it? Still looks like she was pushed to go out here. Remember, the deadline now for the United Kingdom to leave the European Union is October 31st. Remember, it was supposed to be the end of March, and there was all that deadline stuff that was going on. She managed to get a postponement of that. She managed to get the European Union to agree, but that's the last deadline they're going to get. In fact, the French President Emmanuel Macron has said he is absolutely opposed to any further compromise with the UK on this and that they can take it or leave it for October 31st, but he will oppose any future concessions to them when it comes to the way this is supposed to go at all. Meanwhile, Redmond Shannon was also asked about who may be tabbed to be the next Prime Minister and how that person might go about things as they relate to this whole Brexit process. It seems most likely that it will be somebody who is a more ardent um, proponent of Brexit than Theresa May was. Now, Theresa May, you might remember, before the referendum, campaigned for the UK to remain in the EU. But Mm -hmm. once she took over as prime minister, she said she would honor the decision of the people in order to make Brexit happen. She negotiated a deal with the EU, and that deal was just so unpopular that there was no way of getting it through Parliament. So the majority of Conservative MPs are for Brexit, want the UK to leave the EU, and therefore you'd have to assume that it will be a more um, uh, hardline Brexit proponent who will take over. And the favourite right now, the uh, big favourite with the British bookies here is former Mayor of London and former Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson. Um, yeah, everybody, even a, a, someone with a passing idea of British politics will probably know Boris Johnson from yes. his gregarious nature, his big mop of blonde hair, um, a bit of a goofy personality, which he really plays up to. Um, he is the favorite. He would be pushing for a hard Brexit potentially, which could mean uh, the UK could suddenly leave the EU without any type of a deal. But of course, there's a lot of uh, water to flow under the bridge between now and then. All right, that is Redmond Shannon talking with our John McComb. You know Boris Johnson, the guy with the bad hair, right? The big mop of blonde hair. I would just love to see him just once walk out with the hair like nicely combed and everything. He would look completely different. Uh, he's been waiting in the wings for a long time for this moment. People, Some would argue that he's been scheming behind the scenes uh, for this moment. Uh, this is going to be critical now to the UK for moving forward if he can pull this off properly. Uh, Redmond Shannon also says that under new leadership, there is no possible and clear win either, though, for how all of this is going to unfold. There is a deadline for Brexit. It's, it's uh, Halloween, October 31st. That's the, uh, the delayed the Brexit de- uh, date, delayed for a second time. Um, it's, it all depends on what that leader then, what that new prime minister decides to do. It will be about two months. It could be about two months from now when Britain has its new prime minister. So then it's a case of what they decide, what that leader decides to do and how that leader decides to proceed. 
they could pull the plug very suddenly or they could go back to the EU and, and say we want to start again but that could potentially delay Brexit years if they want to renegotiate. Of course, the EU says we're not renegotiating. There is only one deal. This is the only deal that's there. So the other two options, if it's not that deal, really are the hard, sudden Brexit or just stay in the EU, both of which would be hugely unpopular among huge portions of the population here. Global National Correspondent Redmond Shannon. Is air travel going to get better? That is the question after the federal government this morning rolled out its air passenger protection regulations. And this is, of course, right on the eve of the very busy summer travel season. And so it sets out what compensation airlines have to pay if they fail to provide adequate services in a number of different categories. Some of these rules take effect July the 15th. Some of them, a bit more complicated, will take effect this December. But this morning, the Federal Transportation Minister, Mark Garneau, announced these new regulations and says that this is going to put out a good framework for everybody. Rules for clear communication, tarmac delays, denied boarding, lost or damaged luggage, and the transportation of musical instruments will come into force on July the 15th. The more complex rules related to seating as well as delays and cancellations will come into force on December 15th. Our system will be world-class, offering travelers flying to, from, or within Canada with real and fair treatment standards and compensation. Unfortunately, there has been some misinformation circulating regarding these regulations. These regulations do not increase tarmac delay time after which air carriers are required to offer passengers the option to disembark. Also, these regulations will ensure that all air carriers provide the same minimum standards of treatment to passengers during a tarmac delay. There will be penalties up to $25,000 per violation for carriers who do not provide these minimum standards. So that is Transportation Minister Mark Garneau this morning. So is this going to do the trick? Is this going to prevent you from being bumped off a flight or having to sit on a tarmac for hours at a time without any help or assistance? Well, not everybody thinks this is going to do the trick. We wanted to talk to somebody who's been following this story for a long time, and that would be Gabor Lukash, who's the airline passenger rights advocate, and he joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. What did you think about this? Is this going to do the trick for us, make air travel better? No, actually, the, those are anti-passenger regulations. They reduce the protections afforded to Canadian travelers. In what way? Tarmac delays, denied boarding, and flight delays and cancellations are just three examples where uh, the regulations make things worse for Canadians. When you look at how long passengers can be kept on a tarmac, um, that's one very good example <clears throat> of where the, this is a step in the wrong direction. Uh, since 2008, the Canadian uh, standard had been that passengers have to be let off from a flight after 90 minutes of a tarmac delay. Now the government is more than doubling that to uh, three hours and 45 minutes. Right. I fail to see how. Possibly that could be an improvement. And unfortunately, uh, even though uh, the Senate already told the government that this is wrong, thousands, over thousands of passengers, Canadians, told the government this is wrong. They're not listening to the public. Instead, 
they chose to favor the private interest of airlines. But there was no teeth in those previous rules, was there, Gabor? Because we still had lengthy tarmac delays, and it seemed like airlines never really paid the price for that. That what you're referring to is the issue of lack of enforcement. There is there is no fix for it in the regulations. The the fines, the option to fine airlines had been in the books on the books before, but it wasn't used. For example, in air transit. Uh, tarmac delay saga, which you may be familiar with, Air yes. Transit was fined $295,000, but actually it only paid 55000 The rest was waived. Oh, so you're saying that we had the rules before, but we just weren't enforcing them. Of course, they, they, and all the tools were there to enforce those rules for the government, just that there was no interest in enforcing the rules, and I still don't think there will be any interest to enforce them in the future. This is largely regifting existing rights to passengers or clawing back others. What about the overbooking compensation? How do you feel about that? Uh, it is a typical smoke and mirror situation. When you first hear about it, it looks very impressive because, after all, the amounts look generous. But when you look at the details of the fine print, you realize that in the vast majority of the cases, people will not get a dime. Is that better or worse than what we had? Like, what if now if I'm booked from a flight, what kind of repercussions do I have, or what kind of what can I do about that? Now, if you are bumped from a flight, then under the airline's terms and conditions, you are entitled to a certain amount of compensation. The question is not how much money you get, but rather in what conditions, under what conditions you are entitled to compensation. In the past, the Canadian transportation itself, in, under its better days recognize that, for example, if you show up at the airport on time and the airline closes the check-in counter prematurely before the cutoff time, and that's the reason that you don't get on the plane, it is still a form of denied boarding. Under the new rules, the new regulations, that will not count as a denied boarding, so airlines will have an easy way of avoiding uh, paying any compensation by just preventing passengers from checking in. So do you think that's what they're going to do? Do you think airlines will go to more trouble to kind of skirt the rules here rather than just, you know, following them? Airlines have already been going through a lot of trouble to to um, defraud the public. Just think of the report by CBC's Go Public on uh, baggage delay compensation, where the law has already been there since 2003. The Montreal Convention is nothing new, that if your baggage is delayed, you are entitled to about $2,000 of compensation if you incur expenses. And yet the airlines were telling various bogus misinformation to passengers. And uh, even after it was publicized, it still continued. So it, 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 the airlines have a lot of money at stake because for them, it's not only your baggage. It is your baggage multiplied by millions of passengers. So if, if they're able to save $1 on each passenger on average, then for, say, Air Canada, which has uh, 120 million passengers, um, uh, or I'm sorry, um, 36 million passengers, uh, that, that would mean $36 million. So if you look at across all airlines, which would be around 120 million passengers, that would mean $120 million. So a small change on an individual level may mean very substantial financial gain for the airlines. So then what happens if they don't follow the rules? Like, is it now incumbent upon the passengers to go, to pursue the airlines for this? The, the problem that has been that the Canadian Transportation Agency has not been enforcing the rules. So they do have a unit which is tasked with enforcement. They do have people who could issue already, even before the new regulations, penalties of up to $10,000 in some cases, up to $25,000 in the case of 
misinformation of passengers, but they are simply ignoring the rules. They are abdicating their role to enforce the rules. So today, passengers uh, can go take their claims to small claims courts. I would encourage people to avoid dealing with the Canadian Transportation Agency because they lack impartiality and they lack independence. They are very, very cozy with the airlines. Uh, this situation is not going to change, unfortunately, uh, in once those uh, new uh, regulations come into force, because uh, it do- doesn't address the source of the problem, which is lack of enforcement. There is no real incentive for an airline to comply with the regulations if the worst that they will get is some couple thousand dollars of fine. But so then what happens, though, like if people take it to small claims court, do they actually pay there? In small claims courts, there is a judge who is impartial, who uh, actually cares about doing justice on the Canadian Transportation Agency, and the court can force the airline to pay. And in many cases, the airline will pay before the case goes to trial because they know that they would lose. So by taking cases to small claims courts, it also has the advantage that the airline ends up either with a public record of their uh, misconduct, or at least they have to deal with the financial cost of having to defend a case uh, which means that that is a, some minimal consequence for breaking the law. The the current the biggest problem right now is that an airline that doesn't pay a compensation that is owed to passengers faces no financial consequences for breaking the law. So what do you think they should have done then, Gabor? What was a better way to deal with this? With respect to tarmac delays, the Trudeau government should have listened to the Senate. The Senate said and actually passed a, an amendment that tarmac delays should be limited to 90 minutes. But the Trudeau government chose to go against that and insisted that passengers should be kept in a tarmac up to three hours. There was an easy solution there, but they chose to not follow that. With respect to denied boarding compensation, flight delays and cancellations, there is already the European Union's gold standard. We have seen that it works. It makes airlines competitive. Uh, in Europe, airfares are quite low. It didn't there was no airline that went bankrupt because of those uh, European rules. And Canada should have used the experience gaining Europe and built on it. We should have simply copied their passenger uh, protection regulation, Regulation 261 of 2004. And that would have provided lower dollar amounts of compensations, but everybody would actually get compensated people who need to get compensated. So it sounds like, Gabor, you feel like these don't have enough teeth. You're not, you, you don't think this is a great idea. Uh, the, the, it's not simply not enough tea, that's just part of the problem. And the other part is that actually it is taking away rides that passengers would have. When uh, under the regulations that um, was were passed by the government, passengers will not see monetary compensation in the vast majority of the cases, contrary to what the minister is suggesting, because the conditions are way too restrictive and passengers will not be able to qualify for the compensation, even though that hypothetical $1,000 or $2,000 compensation is there, but they don't meet the criteria for it. Hmm. So overall, what we see here is that that, uh, uh, we simply perpetuate lack of accountability for airlines, and uh, we will remain very much uh, behind the European Union's gold standard. All right, Gabor, thank you very much for your time on this. Thank you very much for having me.
That is Gabar Lukacs, who's the airline passenger rights advocate, and says he's not happy. He is a critic of what he sees here. Uh, the government didn't do a good enough job, he says, with their passenger rights measures that they brought forward today. There are certain traditions of summer that we have here in Metro Vancouver, and a very big one is Bard on the Beach. It is a summertime staple, and this year, celebrating its 30th season with a lineup where they're trying some new things, and people are going to have a great time. The season season is coming up. It runs from June the 5th to September the 21st. They've got four productions going on two stages. I could tell you all about it, but you don't want to hear me talk about it. You would much rather hear Christopher Gaze talk about it, the founding artistic director of Bard on the Beach, who joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Wonderful to be back here. Tell me about your lineup this year. Well, we open up with uh, The Taming of the Shrew, which is uh, really a, a step back because it's as you say 30 years so we want to celebrate that and uh, we did in 07 we've done the play many times but in 07 there was a very successful production remarkably successful that people kept talking about we uh, turned it into a western uh, the taming of the shrew oh i remember that that's right okay. spaghetti western yes yes and 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 but a little um, 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 all that sort of sound, you know. And, uh, and we sort of dropped the play into that time and those archetypal characters of those, those wonderful films that came out in the 60s. And it really worked so well. So uh, we're going to do that again, but we're going to reimagine it, look at it differently because the times have changed so much since even then, as yes. you know. And so uh, Kate really becomes the centerpiece and it becomes actually a feminist production. Of The Taming of the Shrew. That's right. It's about time, isn't it? It's about time. <laughs> That's right. Time's up. <laughs> now, time's up, even for The Taming of the Shrew. How do you decide this every year, though? The approach that you're going to take, which productions you're going to mount, mm -hmm. what is that process like? Well, I am. my door is uh, very much open to... Uh, all the great theatre people, uh, both here and across the country. And people pitch us with ideas of, I've got an idea for the comedy of errors, or as you like it, or whatever it might be. And sometimes the ideas come from me or from my team, and we will come to uh, directors and say, here's an idea, pitch us back with how you would uh, sort of embellish this and put this on a pod. So that's one way of doing it. And uh, we've been very, very successful at that. That must be quite a process. Though. Like, when does that start? Does Years ahead. Yeah? Years ahead, yeah. You can't just say that in September. T pitch me for next year. No. Uh, no, unless something really alarming has happened, which fortunately hasn't happened in recent times. So uh, generally, if you walked in with an idea, we'd be looking at uh, 21, 22, 23 uh, I guess so I better get to work on that. Then. You better get to work. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, but we got we got that uh, a wonderful production of Taming the Shrew, which Lois Anderson's putting on. The fabulous cast with Jennifer Lyons playing Kate and Andrew McNear as Petruchio. And He's, that's you've got more than that going on, though. You've oh, got some other stages yes. as well. And we've got and with that production on the BMO main stage. Uh, is Shakespeare in Love. And you remember the film that came out, the Academy Award-winning film. They made a stage play of that, which has been playing all over the world, and we're going to do it now. And uh, Daryl Cloran, who put on that fabulous production last year uh, of uh, As You Like It with the Beatles in it, 
and I must tell you, that production's playing uh, at the Edmonton Citadel. It's playing at the Win Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre in Winnipeg. It's playing Chicago this time next year. And that play is going on all over the place, North America. Thanks to Bart on the Beach. Yes, it That's all nice. began with us. Anyway, and Daryl Cloran put that production on. He's putting on the Shakespeare in Love. And uh, I think it'll be uh, absolutely fantastic. Charlie Gallant playing Shakespeare and Ghazal Azabad is, is playing Viola, another vibrant, strong woman. We got four strong women. The other two uh, that headline our shows with the All's Well That Ends Well. Oh, this I want to hear about. This yes. is on the Howard family stage. So. It's on the Howard family stage in the Douglas Campbell Theatre. And so we're in the mid-40s here, India. Um, and uh, obviously the time of uh, coming up towards the time of independence, partition, all yeah. stuff that we all 1947, know about. 1947, yeah. Part of history. And, uh, and the play falls beautifully into that time frame. Rohit Chakani and, uh, and John Wright uh, came to me uh, two or three years ago with the idea uh, after they'd put on uh, that wonderful production of Merry Wives of Windsor at Bard, and they had this idea, of, idea for All's Well. Rohit, in particular, loved the idea of placing it in India. And they've made it, made perfect sense. So really, really looking forward to that. How much do I love that idea, though? This idea that you're taking these plays that are, you know, 400 years old and transporting them to a time and place that Shakespeare himself could never have imagined. Never have imagined. And I think, and I'm, obviously we very, very much hope that this will open the door uh, to a lot of other people coming to see uh, this production. Uh, and, uh, and So that and, they think Shakespeare is one thing and you're showing them it can be many things. Yes, but all the, the different cultures that make Canada, uh, we, we very much hope that it starts to open that door up much uh, wider on stage. They can see themselves represented, their, perhaps their story or an aspect of their culture and story. And have people think, oh, I, I never thought of it that way before. That's right. So Shakespeare just doesn't belong to a certain sect of people. He belongs to everybody. I love that. Belongs story. to everybody. Yeah, it's a and great I, idea. It, I, I, think, I think you'll love that. And, uh, and then the final production, Coriolanus, which we've never done before. Uh, How come? Um, I was saying to a group this morning when Dean Paul Gibson, who's directing it, um, uh, I was saying we've never not done it because I don't like it or we have an aversion to it or anything like that. It just hasn't come up. So we've only got two more plays. We've got Coriolanus, which we're going to do this year, and then Henry VIII will be the... Well, we'll fulfill the canon in all the years that uh, we've been you doing Bard. still haven't done Henry VIII. We haven't done Henry VIII, but I'd like to do it before I'm finished. And so we will in the next uh, couple Wait of years. Wait a minute. What do you mean before you're finished? What does well, that mean? No, no, uh, you know, uh, no one's getting any younger. But uh, <laughs> my time will come like a good cheese. And uh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> but, I thought maybe you were making some plans no, for something. No, I have no, I have no plans to leave at all. I've been doing this, as you know, for thirty yes. years, and uh, and I don't want to stop now. I love it, and Bard is so vibrant, so strong. We now have a uh, hundred and ten thousand people almost came to Bard last year. We blew the roof off it with it with uh, with the last season, and uh, things look really, really good for this year. What is your favorite, though? You're you're so kind of intimately connected to all of Shakespeare's work. You've clearly presented it and seen it in all these different ways. 
Do you have a favorite? I do have a favorite. And uh, it, it, it's, it's, easy, it's always easy to say. I could say, all the plays this season are my favorite. And, uh, and th- that would be a, um, an, an be answer. A it would it be may, well, yes. <laughs> um, But I cannot resist. I love it with all my heart, uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream, because it's, uh, it's so accessible. Everybody has a good time. It's full of fairies. It's full of fun. It's full of joy and magic and beautiful words and love and romance um, and daftness. And it's just glorious. So uh, we're going to have to do that soon, I think. I think. Well, it seems to. It, and plus, it would just be so magical in summer night to sit there I and know. to watch that. It must be hard for you to resist putting that on every year. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that. When. Uh, I, I conceived Bard uh, back all those years ago. I felt, uh, and I said to the first board of directors, we're going to put Midsummer Night's Dream on every year. Uh, it's just going to be there, a staple. And then we did it for in 90, and we did it in 91, and the audience grew exponentially from 6,000 to 11,000 in those very early years, and I knew we didn't have to do it again for a while. We didn't do it again till 1999, our 10th anniversary. So we keep it for when we want it. When uh, was the last time you did it then? Uh, we did it for our 25th anniversary, which I think was in five 40, years ago. Yeah, five okay. Years, yeah. So you're almost due again for this. We're almost due. <laughs> almost That's there. right. <laughs> so do you, is this a year-long project for you? I mean, it's, obviously this is busy yeah. for you, but what is that schedule like? Is it always thinking about this? Always thinking about it. It's a it's a mission, really. It's a, it's what my life has has become, uh, and it's a good reason. Did you uh, ever foresee that though? Like you said, you started this six thousand people that first year. Here you are, thirty years later, one hundred and ten thousand people. I know. I know. I'd, I'd be telling you a whopper if I said I could see it all. Of course, I couldn't see it all. I believed it could be successful. And I was right about that. Uh, but who could have conceived the love uh, and loyalty uh, that Bard has in this city and beyond and uh, how, how excellent it has become. It's, uh, it's talked about right across the country and further now. And people trust that when they come to Bard, it will be great. You've got a great setting. Right? We, we have the most, one of the most beautiful settings in the world with that open backdrop behind the stage. The whole experience of coming to Bard is part of the experience of the, of the show you're attending, afternoon or night. And, uh, and we do it in, in, in... There's these wonderful firework nights that come yes. up when the city has the great firework nights. We put on our show and, uh, and we, have, we wall off a private area. A thousand people come for dinner and show... And we entertain them for about five hours. Yeah, you've, you've really become kind of part of this magical kind of Vancouver summertime experience. Yeah. And now Bart is kind of so woven into that. Uh, so this year, do you expect more record-breaking crowds? What are sales like? Could be. Sales are up now over last year. Now here so- you are talking about it. More people are going to buy tickets. <laughs> well, we hope so, but we'll see what happens. Uh, last year will be really hard to supersede because it just, it just people just went mad for it. Never seen anything like it. It, it sure looks good for this year. Does the weather help? Um, people buy ahead generally these days because we sell so well. It's it's sort of uh, doesn't matter. Chancy if you say, "Oh, I wonder if I can go to bar tonight." You may you you just might not be able to get right. a ticket, and so people buy ahead. So if it's raining, if it's hot, if it's cloudy, if it's this or it's that, 
People are there anyway and they love it. They cover up when it's uh, cool. They take off when it's warm. And it's just what it is. Christopher, where can people get tickets? Where can they find more information? On our website, of course, barontheBeach.org, or just phone our box office, 604-739-0559. And you brought us a little something today too, didn't you? I did. Tickets! <laughs> he brought us two tickets for Taming of the Shrew, but we know he was so generous with this. We're going to hold on to these, and you don't mind if we use them for our news quiz today. Oh, no, they'd be fantastic. There you go. That's exactly what we'll do. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. Always welcome. That's Christopher Gaze, founding artistic director of Bard on the Beach, which is about to kick off. It is happening June the 5th to September 21st. Get your tickets now.